The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. We kick off 2020 with children's author Owen Colfer. Later on, we'll be talking about the books that made our own childhoods. When Owen Colfer's novel Artemis Fowl was tearing up the bestseller charts in 2001, it seemed as if the author had cracked the recipe for getting reluctant boys to read. Take one part adventure, one part tech, mix in some fairies and add farts. The eight-book series completed its arc in 2012, when the young villain Artemis finds a kind of redemption. But Colfer returns to the foul universe with a story involving Artemis's younger twin brothers Miles and Beckett. The foul twins finds the brothers on the rampage with a troll and a fairy in training. When he came to the studio, Sean began by asking him to read from the book, where the reader first gets to know Miles and Beckett. Behold Miles and Beckett Fowl passing a late summer evening on the family's private beach. If you look past the superficial differences, wardrobe, spectacles, hairstyles and so on, you notice that the boys' facial features are very similar but not absolutely identical. This is because they are dizygotic twins and were in fact the first recorded non-identical twins to be born conjoined, albeit only from wrist to little finger. The attending surgeon separated them with a flash of her scalpel and neither twin suffered any ill effects apart from matching pink scars that ran along the outside of their palms. Miles and Beckett often touched scars to comfort each other. It was their version of a high five, which they called a wrist bump. This habit was both touching and slightly gross. Apart from their features, the fraternal twins were, as one tutor noted, very different animals. Miles had an IQ of 170 and was fanatically neat, while Beckett's IQ was a mystery because he chewed the test into pulpy blobs from which he made a sculpture of a hamster in a bad mood, which he titled Angry Hamster. Owen Colfer, welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. Now, I'm going to say 10-year-old me, uh, who is very similar to 28-year-old me, is very happy right now um, because I, I grew up reading the Artemis Fowl books um, since the very first book came out in 2001. Um, and uh, I always had a real sort of fond uh, fondness for Artemis Fowl because it was the one book, apart from Harry Potter, that I could convince the adults around me to read as well. well nice. It's funny that somewhere, even though in my mind I'm like 27, Somehow I've become a nostalgia act, partially, <laughs> partially. So like there's me and Tears for Fears wondering what, what happened? <laughs> are, we not, are we not the cutting edge anymore? But uh, no, it, it's really nice when, when you go to a reading and parents are there with their kids and the parents have their old Artemis books and the kids have the Fowl Twins. So <laughs> it's nice to be able to forge that bridge. Now, I'm not saying that I personally... I'm keeping families together, but I do take, <laughs> You're say the I take a large <laughs> part of the credit for that. <laughs> I mean, so the Artemis Fowl books, for anyone that uh, hasn't hasn't read them, um, they were a series of eight books about a, a child genius who learns that fairies exist. Um, and uh, he starts an extortion scheme to get his hands on some fairy gold. Um, and uh, he holds an elf hostage, and it turns out she's part of the... Uh, the sort of fairy police service and uh, their full might is brought down on the uh, uh, his family's uh, estate in Ireland. Um, and you've called it Die Hard with Fairies, which I think is actually a very good 
sort of shorthand description but um and it's also been called james bond with fairies um and i understand that there is a sort of connection with james bond in that artemis is uh, at the start of the series a sort of tiny boy that wears suits which is uh, quite strange and you've said that it has a connection to your brother donal is that right yeah i remember seeing a photo of donal in his communion suit um, and he looked it, it was in the 1980s so it was kind of a Roger Moore era bond <laughs> so it was like double breasted safari kind of suit and it was it was very uh, fancy for the time and uh, but in this photo he had a little smirk because he knew how good he looked and uh, I, I just thought he looks like a Bond villain um, who's only 10 and that notion stuck with me for a long time yeah I thought that'd be quite a funny thing to explore, a little 10-year-old villain. Um, so when I wrote the first Artemis book, I just plonked my brother down. But the more I wrote it, the more I saw, this guy's not just the villain, he's he's the lead. So mm. I elevated him to the main character. And then I thought, well, no one's going to read it now because it's a bad guy. But I was having so much fun that I didn't stop and I just finished the book and... Uh, I honestly thought that it would be a little blip and uh, then I would go on to the next thing. So when I got an agent from that and next thing I had a movie deal and the publishers wanted three books and I found it all kind I was bemused by the whole thing. (laughs) And I continue to be a little bit uh, bemused that this little idea that came from a photo um, has gone on for nearly 20 years now. Yeah. So you never know. You ne- I always tell kids who, who are writing, just be open to that idea because you don't know where it's gonna hit, when it's going to hit you. And you might only get one. Yeah. Uh, and you have to build on that. That's interesting to hear that it was planned as just, well, sort of just was only, in your mind, it was it was yeah, the one book. I, my fr- very first book was a book called Benny and Omar, and uh, which did um, well in Ireland and, strangely, Denmark. Hmm. Uh, but... Uh, that featured a scene where the the lead guy Benny, who's a twelve year old kid, uh, is tasked with babysitting his younger brother, and he sneaks out and leaves the brother. Now, in my mind, that is quite a normal occurrence, and I had done that myself as a child, where we, I was babysitting my little brothers, and we, I just left, and I thought, well, I'll be back in an hour, and nothing will happen. Mm. Uh, and there was a kind of a bit of a pushback to that character doing that thing in that it wasn't a good example. And I didn't realize that you were supposed to be setting an example. Mm. Um, so when I wrote Artemis, I thought, well, this guy's like an out and out villain. I mean, yeah. they're going to hate him. Uh, but seemingly because it was so obviously fiction, uh, it um, it slipped through. So I really was shocked when suddenly there was talk of charts and stuff and uh yeah it was it was a big shock to me and um i had a lot of trouble writing the second book but once i got over that um i was fine but uh, i thought for the second book i just i felt that huge pressure of the last book was did this well and now you want the second book to do equally as well yeah that's so interesting it must be quite a strange adjustment to make to suddenly view something that started with a photo of yeah. your brother as like a franchise, as a big Well, I often, franchise. yeah, I, I wrote these books in the baby's bedroom, but only when the baby was not asleep. So I couldn't even have the room a lot of the time. Uh, so, and I would, it was literally beside the changing table 
and that is the smell I associate with work, <laughs> like nappies and talking powder. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. And I, w- and I would say that I have never had a better writing experience than when I was working during the day, teaching and then writing furiously at night. And uh, my wife was running a boutique and we had a baby. <laughs> and the interesting thing about your books is that they do transcend they are yeah. children's books but they yeah. do transcend there are things in the, them that adults really love yeah. um, and you do sometimes find it with children's authors that they do have some yeah. sort of particular connection to children that they have some sort of shared sense of humour or they're yeah. on some sort of wavelength they like how children think that sort of thing yeah. is that true of you or is it just so happens that you write children's books uh, I think I was teaching kids when I started writing books for kids before that I had written a few plays and I had tried my hand at a crime novel, but with the with the kids' books, I was actually teaching them at the time, and and it came to me very quickly the wavelength. But there are people. I think a great example of that is Oliver Jeffers. Mm. He does picture books, but literally anyone can read them, especially his new one, Fausto, which is a fable. Uh, but there are no kids in that book, you know. And but just anybody can read them, and anybody can love them. Michael Morpargo. Uh, is another one Jacqueline Wilson J.K. Rowling of course it's just the list goes on and I do believe that if it's a decent book if it's to hold up that anyone who is able to read it would enjoy it mm. and uh, that goes all the way from picture books um, right, you know right up to the the top end and um, I would certainly hope that Artemis Fowl would and the Fowl Twins would fall into that bracket and yeah, I think there definitely are things that maybe some of the kids won't get, mm. but I try and make sure that they don't interfere with the plot. No. Uh, and that they, they're not very obviously done where I'm trying to be meta and wink-wink, because I think that, uh, I don't like that, but I do like to put in some jokey names for the grown-ups. Uh, my favourite one is the uh, the dwarf, um, Colin, who who is a digger of dark, smelly holes, but his second name is Oscopy. So his full name is Colin Oscopy, and the kid, the parent doesn't know that until they get onto the page, and they're they're just hijacked with it, and they've suddenly said Colin Oscopy, and they're laughing, and the kid wants to know why you're laughing, Dad. So that is the kind of sneaking in gags for the sneaking the gags that will hopefully make uh, a parent explain something that is well ahead of the child's development. <laughs> I, I like the idea. It's probably never happened, but I like to think it it would. But you're in a room on your own for nine months, so you have to keep yourself entertained. <laughs> I'm always I'm really interested in authors that I would sort of I would define it in my own mind as comic yeah. writers, um, and I guess actually like rereading Artemis Fowl and reading this book, The Fowl Twins, like reading it as an adult. Um, immediately, the comparisons I make now as an adult, rather than to other children's books, are things like perhaps some of Neil Gaiman's work and yeah. Terry Pratchett um, and Douglas Adams as well. Yeah, well, I will. I will. Those are three of my heroes, and I was lucky enough to have met two out of three. So um, I never met Douglas, even though uh, I, I I finished up his The Hitchhikers. Uh, yeah, you wrote the the sixth book in the. Uh, I did. Set. I mean, I shouldn't really say finished up. In in my mind, it was kind of. Uh, licensed fan fiction. Uh, I met Terry Pratchett one time at an award show. Um, well, I say met him. I kind of ran after him. <laughs> he was leaving early, and uh, at this time, I was getting I was getting quite dis- disillusioned with touring. Uh, and I don't know how he knew that. 
and he said you have to tour he said there's a handful of us came out of the 70s and the only ones still going are the ones who tour right and you've got to meet your readers because they want to meet you and that was to hear that from terry pratchett and then he kind of swirled his cloak and ducked into a carriage with his hat on he has his hat on and his cloak. <laughs> i'd made up the carriage bit but the rest is true and i was so you know in awe of terry pratchett uh, that i immediately went on the road <laughs> <laughs> And so then you said you wrote Artemis Fowl books uh, for about 15 years and there were eight of them. And then um, I I was listening back to an interview you gave when the last book came out and you were saying that you were were relieved to be saying goodbye to Artemis, but you were also upset about it. Um, And so then now you're back with the Fowl twins, which is Artemis's little brothers, uh, Beckett and Miles. So how what was the decision like in terms of going, actually, no, I am going to return to this world, but just not Artemis. I had that. I had that plot in mind but at the t- when I finished Artemis but at the time I just felt too saturated with fairy lore and I felt I'd been in that world so long that I couldn't face going back um, to to another volume so I just thought I'm going to take five or six years out and then if there's any appetite for it um, I will go back and do a foul twin so um, I just did the first chapter and my agent sent that out and uh, you know, I was very lucky to to, to um, sign with Harper Collins, who I'd done Imaginary Fred with uh, Oliver Jeffers, so I knew the team, and I was really happy to go in there. And it's been just great. And I don't think I'll do such a long series. I, my current plan is a trilogy, um, and then uh, definitely I'll tell my wife I'm retiring. <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> and was it uh, was it at all daunting or anything to enter back into this world again and sort of have to? pick up some things where you left off and then also establish new characters. Yeah, it was a little daunting because when you leave something on a real high and the whole... I, I wanted to get out of Artemis while it was still doing well on all fronts in that it was critically doing well and it was selling well and people still wanted to see me. And having left that for five years or six years, which is a long time in children's books because all the kids who are reading it have now grown up and sometimes the kids do not want their parents writers they want their own new writers mm. and, and children's writing has really changed in that it's become this m- amazing inclusive arena where everybody is represented which is fantastic uh, so I don't know my place in that yet and uh, so to go back in there yeah it was a challenge but eventually I kind of just put out, left all my worries outside the office and just said listen you can only write the book you're going to write and write the best book and don't be pathetic enough to try and jump on someone's bandwagon. Uh, just do what you do and see what happens. And you were mentioning before about how there was, um, I guess with Benny and Omar, that yeah. there was this attitude of, well, kids shouldn't be doing this, so should you be writing about it? And yeah. then we've got evil genius Artemis, yeah. who's really until maybe, like I'd say, the end of the second book, you yeah. don't really get a sense of any genuine goodness in no, him and th- even then it takes a few more books to kind of bubble to the surface and I kept I was very I was kind of mean with Artemis because he would do something nice and then I would make him do something horrible <laughs> to undercut it uh, and uh, that's what I liked about it I, I liked teasing the, the readers with and now he's going to do a nice thing and now I'm going to take it <laughs> and, and it wasn't well, until think, the end of the book eight where he does a selfless thing he did a lot of nice things but there was always something there in was it another him. purpose yeah. yeah he always made money or he got rid of a rival but in the last book i knew that he had to do something selfless and then that was i it was all over for him then he was a good guy then so it was time to send him off into space <laughs> and get rid of him 
And so then do you think, I mean, are you at all resistant to the idea that there has to be some sort of uh, heart of gold at the heart in, in, in children's books? That um, there has to be sort of a, a moral message at all? I, I think there's a place for everything. I mean, I think it is nice to have books with a moral message. Um, but also it's nice to have books that are a little bit devious and subversive, mm. you know, and, and and I think I'm in that bracket. I, I always say that, you know, if J.K. Rowling is... Um, I don't know. Take that. Well, then I'm I'm E seventeen, you know, and we need <laughs> we need E seventeen, and that's that's who I am. <laughs> well, I do love it. So we've got um, Artemis was sort of firmly our bad guy uh, for the books uh, for most of the books, and then there were villains introduced. And you always got a sense that you really liked writing villains. Yeah. And in the Foul Twins, we have uh, Lord Teddy Bleedem Dry, who's the, uh, a man of 150 plus years. Um, who wants troll venom to achieve eternal youth. <laughs> I know. It's like I, I feel I'm getting to the bottom of my baddie well now because I, I love the two baddies in this. You've got Sister Geronima, who's a professional interrogator. Uh, a nun. A nun, a non-interrogator. And then you have Teddy Bleedham Dry, who's just a mortalist duke of the Silly Isles. And uh, that's I just love that. And I spend a lot of time trying to pin down the baddies and what makes them different. Uh, and what I love about Teddy is like he knows he's the baddie. Mm. Like most baddies don't know they're the baddie. They mm. think they have a good cause, but he knows he's completely selfish and that he just wants to live longer um, because he would enjoy to live longer and that would be great. Uh, <laughs> so whereas Sister Geronima is a fanatic yeah. and she wants to capture these fairy people and she'll do whatever she has to do, but she believes she's good and on the side of, of the angels. So you have this inst- interesting... Uh, drama, dramatic tension between Miles and the two baddies, because Miles also realizes that he's quite the only pink person. He, the only people he loves are in his family, mm. and he will do outside that. He's actually more evolved than Artemis because Artemis wanted gold, but Miles wants knowledge. Mm. And he, in the, I'm working on the second book now, and he will do a lot to become the most knowledgeable person human ever and mainly because he wants to beat Artemis at something are you at all nervous about how it's going to be received both by I guess this new generation of readers but also perhaps some parents that grew up with I am uh, yeah I mean I say I'm not and I'm all blasé about it but actually yes you can't help being a little bit uh, nervous and you know uh, of all the reviews if 99 of them are fantastic and then one has something tiny minorly negative to say then that's what I will fix. Right yeah. on. It's a real writer's thing. I think someone <laughs> said once about one of the Artemis books, some of the sentences are a bit short. I was like, what? <laughs> and I read, I read back and I was like, she's right. There's four short sentences in those eight books. <laughs> so you just can't help it. It's a very uh, human thing to just listen to all the detractors and ignore <laughs> all the praise. Well, I have to end on, finally, that there is, as all Artemis Fowl fans have probably been aware of for about the last decade, that there's been an Artemis Fowl film planned for ages and ages and ages. Um, I think I remember reading about it once upon a time. I think that George Clooney's production company had it at one point, yolks ago. And then now it's at Disney, which is amazing and and big. But I, I guess for you, like, what does it feel like to have... I am very dubious that that's you know that I will be alive when that happens really you know I I feel (laughs) there's a trailer I mean it's made and it's in the can and it's got a release date and it's all set to go in May on uh, Memorial Day which is a huge release day for them in the States Mm. Um, so it's it is happening 
but it's again the Irish you don't want to jinx it by believing it if I believe it's <laughs> going to happen then it won't happen yeah so what I'm trying to do is temper my own excitement so you're going to wait till May next year I'll to wait till I'm in the cinema <laughs> and then I said what who's, what are we watching tonight and then you know why am I wearing a tuxedo and uh, and then it will happen but it, it's so and like the the cast and the like Kenneth Branagh it's such a sterling yeah. production so Branagh, Branagh's directing it he's directing it it's Callum McPherson wrote it Judy Dench is in it among others the young Artemis and the young Holly are fantastic I haven't seen the whole thing but what I've seen looks looks amazing but you see now I'm getting very excited I have to stop now <laughs> okay because I'll, I'll, I'll uh, I will jinx it so yeah, I think it's going to happen and everyone's very excited except me. And uh, <laughs> my only stipulation is, and I'm saying this in public now, that if my sons want to go, they have to read the first, they have to read the book. Oh, yeah. I think that's a fair. Are they refusing? Well, they're they're being tardy about that. They're taking their time. Well, Finn is, Finn is 22 now, so he's taking a lot of time. <laughs> Has uh, been out for 18 years. <laughs> I know. So, um, I, but Sean, is, I, I understand that it's hard to, you don't want to connect to something your dad did that might be cool to other people. <laughs> it, it taints your whole understanding of what parents are. Yeah. So he, we'll see. I'm sure they will read it or, or else they'll get the notes. You know, there must be notes online. that gives Give the, them the, the Cliff Notes version. The Wikipedia Artemis. Artemis page. <laughs> That's where I go, actually, if I can't remember a character. <laughs> I, God, did I kill him? I type him in. Have a look. And I have a look. Owen Colfer. The Foul Twins is published by HarperCollins Children's Books in the UK and Disney Hyperion in the US. After the break, we'll be reverting to childhood ourselves, or at least flicking back through some of the books we enjoyed when we were young. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Talking to Owen Colfer made me think about the gap between the high-velocity, scatological thrills of Artemis Fowl and the stodgy fare children had to read back in the 1970s when I was growing up. It's clear there's been a revolution in children's publishing, driven, of course, by the juggernaut that is Harry Potter. You were six, Sean, when J.K. Rowling published The Philosopher's Stone in 97, and 16 when the series came to a close with The Deathly Hallows. So what was it like growing up with a boy wizard? Um, it was funny growing up with a book series like that that was so... Um sort of important in its own time like uh i, I got into harry potter when the the first two books were out so uh oh, right away Stone. yeah but um because i mean i think she hit, sort of hit a wider audience with book three really yeah book three was the thing that made her really massive and the funny thing was that um we had an exchange student from england that came to <laughs> some from australia and this exchange student came from england and he had the third book and it wasn't out in australia yet, and he was like the coolest yeah. person in class did he have specs <laughs> no <laughs> Although, um, yeah, so I, 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 I got really into it around that point, and then it was around about book four that it became the thing that you, you know, go at. Well, it was at eight a.m. in in Australia, where I was from, but you know, the midnight launch. Yeah. Um, oh, you turn up things. and you queue. That's you in the yeah, queue. Yeah, yeah, you turn <laughs> up in queue. Um, and so I had, uh, yeah, I had, I really, really vividly remember like the day Deathly Hallows came out, and. Uh, I was sort of in my last years of high school and uh, going and dressing up uh, with my friends to go get our books and uh, just realising that, like, we were, like, some of the youngest people there. Like, lots of people were, you know... Yeah, 20-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. And, and, like, you know, adults that had, uh, you know, clearly, like, gotten into it as teenagers and then, you know, 
there was an old bloke dressed as Hagrid in front of me in the line. I remember <laughs> eating a Twix for breakfast. <laughs> and so, and so, would the fact the fact that these books were being so widely read by so many, I mean, so many kids and adults alike, mm. did this mean that people in your generation were reading more other books, or were they just actually just reading Harry Potter? Oh, uh, there were no. There, I think that there's a lot of people that only read Harry Potter. Like it was the only thing that I liked. And I, Harry Potter, Twilight, and Hunger Games were the things that people tended to read. Um, if they sort of didn't normally they weren't regular readers um and that's just in my experience like uh, it was sort of those were the books that sort of transcended whether you were a big reader or not um and it just became something you had to do even if you weren't much of a reader yeah it's sort of like it was kind of word of mouth that sort of uh, tra- you know people that didn't normally read um would there was enough pressure put on them by the people around them that oh this is a very good thing you should give this a go um so with with harry potter it was um it was kind of unavoidable really in terms of my generation you couldn't really not read it there were so many conversations going on with your friends and uh you know pop culture references and stuff you literally couldn't really function without having some understanding of harry potter um and for for people like you who were reading other things as well what what about the rest of the children's publishing boom is there, is there a dog-eared copy of artemis fowl on oh shelves? totally yeah no um my, my parents still have all my artemis fowl books in <laughs> australia because my dad really likes artemis fowl um so there were like certain series like artemis fowl and harry potter were the two things that i could get adults around me to read like they there was enough humor in there because I, I think rereading Owen Colfer now I kind of see oh there's like quite a lot of Terry Pratchett in him like there's there is a uh, a real uh, sort of comedy there that I think a lot of adult readers would really really enjoy there's probably loads of jokes that I wouldn't have got at the time and so I've got all my honest fouls still at home um, and my dad loves them uh, and uh, I also grew up uh, Philip Pullman but Philip Pullman was something that I think I, I with his dark materials I got into quite late because I had no interest in some of the sort of deeper themes of the books until I was a bit older um and less popular with the grown-ups around you yeah my dad never like and using my dad as my barometer because he was the guy <laughs> I could convince to read um and he, uh, he he never really got uh Philip Pullman um but it was it was it was kind of it was a really good time to be a kid and be reading because as a young adult fiction as like a genre was already a thing when I was a teenager but I got to sort of see it explode and um, it was a very sort of cool time to be a nerdy kid that read a lot because there were so many books around there was a sort of sense you were being catered for um, and it wasn't necessarily a nerdy thing to be a reader. Yeah, yeah, but actually sort of seen for the first time yeah. by the books industry. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, you also got in slightly before what I think of as the kind of Hunger Games years, because mm. that was st- published in 2008, and everything went very dystopian for a few yeah. years after that. I was a bookseller in about 2009, 2010, um, uh, when I started, and uh, I saw that huge explosion in both Twilight and in uh, Hunger Games, and... Um, there was a period where, like, basically every second customer would come up, would be buying one or the or the other, um, and then 
after that it all went 50 shades like it was really funny you can sort of see the the tailing off of twilight and then people coming and buying 50 shades was it the same people was, yeah no it really was like it, there was a really big crossover i felt so uncomfortable selling 50 shades to teenagers but um there's no law against it so there you go um but yeah it, it it's it was really um it, it is quite a cool time now i think like I, you said before that you feel like children's literature was a bit stodgy i mean i like i loved i loved quite a lot of classic stuff but did you read any of that stuff yeah, with that yeah. explosion going on around you so i read a lot of uh uh, f- f- uh famous five did you i didn't like secret seven too many kids <laughs> <laughs> the dog was boring um and i could never abide the famous five <laughs> like jo- jolly hockey sticks and it's ginger so, beer it's just so made good um but I also um, I read a lot of Hardy Boys and a lot of uh, Trixie Belden. Did, huh. Do you ever did you get Trixie Belden? Get as far as Trixie Bell, but uh, the Hardy Boys were that was basically the only books that I could see in you yeah. know that were kind of aimed at, at kids my yeah, age. Yeah, and Nancy Drew as well. Like yeah. I read a lot of sort of serialized, quite hammy <laughs> <laughs> books about teenagers solving crimes. Um, because it's that slot, isn't it? That slot between picture books and grown-ups that just didn't really exist. I mean, yeah. you know, because when I was growing up, the, the picture books were already pretty great because things happened in the 60s. So mm. there was things like Raymond Briggs' Jim and the Beanstalk was 66, Father Christmas, 1973, The Snowman, 1978, uh, John Burningham, the great John Burningham, Borker, 1963, mm. True Bluff, um, The Mouse Who Wanted to Play the Balalaikas, 1964, and William Stieg's Amos and Boris, 1972, another key text. What's Amos I, and Boris? Uh, well, <laughs> perhaps you know Julia Donaldson, The Snail and the Whale? Oh, yeah. It's basically the same story, okay. except with a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> and not in rhyme. <laughs> and better pick... Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> but for me, so with this kind of vast gulf between those picture books and then kind of grown-up books, uh, mm. there was kind of myths and legends that did it for me when I was... Uh, so I remember Roger Lansing Green's telling of the, the Tales of the Norsemen, which I've got the opening of it here because it's just so marvellous and cold. Mm-hmm. In the northern lands, the summer is short and the winter long and cold, he writes. Life is a continual battle against the grim powers of nature, against the cold and the darkness. The snow and ice of winter, the bitter winds, the bare rocks where no green thing will grow, and against the terrors of dark mountains and wolf-haunted ravines. Mm. What, who couldn't Very thrill good. to that? <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got you've got his sun-dappled Greek heroes as well. They were great. No, um, and the, good. there was also a kind of certain amount of kind of real life stuff. I mean, they were the kind of they were still still when I was growing up. They were kind of the the kind of Second World War comics that mm-hmm. we all passed around, Banzai, all that stuff. Yeah, um, which was kind of. Just an interesting kind of uh, interesting uh, indoctrination to the colonial art, um, and there was but there was kind of also real life kind of stories of kind of great sort of adventures or people again people fighting in planes or wars or whatever or you know strange but true kind of football stories. Sort of that stuff. was the thing that I discovered when I moved here. Biggles, yeah, there Biggles you go. are massive, and I had never heard of Biggles yeah. when I was in Australia. <laughs> We're still reliving it even now. The Second World War is with us still, folks. Um, but beyond that, it's kind of fantasy. There's kind of there was the Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster, which I recall as being surreal and mm. slightly slightly odd but slightly marvellous as well or there's then, then there's the books that were written for grown-ups so I mean, we read Huckleberry Finn or Treasure Island or you know White Fang or into you know things like fantasy like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings mm. which I mean is kind of where we've arrived back with added farts with Owen Colfer <laughs> 
it's Lord of the Rings with farts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd like that. Um, and a much more kind of a sort of thrillerish firecracker kind of plot as well. Yeah, yeah. Lord well, of the Rings takes its time about the landscape. Yeah. I mean, he's obsessed with bleeding trees and hills and all that stuff. Yeah, I find The Hobbit the most boring <laughs> book on earth. Like, I know I love Lord of the Rings, but no the stamina. Hobbit that's is your the problem. Worst. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's all for this week. Uh, with next week, Samantha Harvey joins us to discuss a subject that will be very dear to us in uh, just a little less than twenty-four hours: uh, sleep. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, for me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Esther Pokujeni. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.